Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest comes from Hamburg. Uh, his name is Peter, the founder and CEO at Cybus. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And you, you have a great story. It's, it's your second startup slash uh, scale up and uh, but for the ones who didn't have the privilege to get to know you uh, better as I did before uh, tell us a little bit more about your story and how you did it uh, how you ended uh, founding uh, Cybus yeah okay that's uh, one of the rare occasions where I can tell the full story I'm very excited to do that um, uh, yes uh, today, I'm the CEO of Cybus, which is a software company uh, serving industrial clients, enterprise industrial clients with a software which is very sophisticated for improving operational excellence and smart factories, very industrial. And uh, my story actually would not uh, suggest uh, me ending in this industrial setting because uh, as you said, before starting Cybus, I did something very different, namely I rented sailboats. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm always a little bit struggling if I should call what I did before a startup at all, at least it was a venture, I would say. Right. Um, it was, so I'm, um, uh, I'm an engineer myself, electrical engineer by education, software engineer at heart, I would say. Uh, I'm one of those guys who uh, taught uh, himself uh, programming basically uh, when I was 11 or 12 or so. And mm -hmm. I always did programming and I always did uh, internet websites, databases, backend systems, Linux service got more and more sophisticated. And then there was this point in time um, uh, that was around 2010, I would say. Mm -hmm. 12 years ago, 13 years ago, when a friend of uh, mine and I, we, we got a sailboat into our hands, a very nice wooden classic uh, sailing dinghy. And we wanted to have this in Hamburg. We have a little lake in, in the center of Hamburg, the Alster, very beautiful mm -hmm. little lake where you can sail on. And we wanted to put the boat there, but we were just students. And it was a question of money because such a berth is expensive. And so we we thought, let's right. rent this boat with friends. Um, but the other thing is we don't have time. So we should probably automate the renting process somehow, make it modern. And because I was an engineer and my friend was a uh, smartphone app developer back then, mm -hmm. we came up with the idea of adding a GPS tracker to the boat and uh, um, building a, a booking platform and payments back end and, and, and an app. So you could walk along the, the lake wow. and basically rent our boat. Yeah. Amazing. That was the, orig the original idea. And one thing to emphasize here is that was 2010. Yeah. Today, I would just say, okay, we connected some sailboats to an IoT platform and built a sharing platform on top of it. But 2010, we didn't have Airbnb. Right. Share sharing wasn't a word. Exactly. Uh, uh, having a smartphone was new and IoT wasn't a word either. So it was incredible. It was a little bit, little bit premature, I would say. Right. Um, um, but it was fun and it worked 
um, we, we learned a lot about especially trust uh, because we had really this beautiful wooden sailboat we gave to strangers and it, uh, with, without any problems and we we scaled this uh, a little bit and tried to build a business on top of it and I think we made it to 70 or 80 boats uh, wow. in Germany all from private people um, so like Airbnb for sailboats yeah but okay. impressive on the one hand but a little bit too idealistic. We didn't earn a single euro with it. Yeah, in the end, it was all. It was we didn't. It was lose an money. MBA. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we didn't lose money, um, but we also didn't gain a lot um, uh, because in the end, that was the first learning back then. Um, we spent the first month of this venture, which was called Botschaft. It's a German play of words. Uh, for boat rental um, and we spent the first months I remember very well after the squash games every week we, we designed our communication protocol mm -hmm. we did the engineering how can we save mm -hmm. the battery on the boat and send the GPS positions how to optimize um, the data flow towards battery usage and so on and it was mm -hmm. super technical and we completely missed back then that we should invest in marketing and think about sales <laughs> and so on. Right. Um, so that was uh, an, an important learning. Um, the second thing that we learned was it's incredibly hard to growth hack something like that um, mm -hmm. when you have a limited season. Now, sailing is right. in Germany possible from may to september i would say uh, everything else is more for the hardcore guys and um, <laughs> um you have the sunny weekends between may and september where you can really try to grow taxes so right. um it didn't work out at all but we made an observation back then and it was more accidental when we so we built a system and it was very um specifically designed for our reservation system. For example, our boats would send their position once per 15 minutes because mm -hmm. that was enough. We didn't need more because we only wanted to know what was the boat already brought back to the berth or should we charge right. another 15 minutes on the PayPal account, right? Got it. And then some sailing clubs approached us and said, okay, you have a GPS tracking and we have sailboat races. Mm -hmm. Can't we use the same trackers for the sailboat races? And then we said, yes, of course. But our problem was then we would need more uh, second interval, every second a position for the racing. Right. Um, so we, we were in a situation where we suddenly saw we could on the same technological basis, we could add another application, but, but we need some modularity. And then... Uh, we had to throw away all our work about the proprietary protocols and so on. Mm -hmm. And we stumbled over a technology which is called MQTT. It doesn't have, don't have to explain that, but it's now a right. very popular communication protocol in the Internet of Things. And okay. we stumbled over that in 2012. And we, in, in one afternoon, we replaced our complete system with 
MQTT and suddenly it was like a light bulb going on. Yeah, so we, mm -hmm. we saw, okay, what is the power of that? And in 2014, when everybody started to talk about IoT, we realized, okay, what we just built was an IoT for sailboats, internet of sailboats, yeah? because right. we had connected sailboats. Right. Okay, so let's take this technological um, experience we made mm -hmm. and try to take the technology, but now into a market with an economic problem. Right. Uh, and that was really the start of Cybus. That was the very naive uh, um, spark of an idea that I really can boil down to transferring a very scalable technology from the classic internet into the mm -hmm. industry. And this technological transfer is really what is still our everyday business today. Got it. What an amazing and inspiring story. And uh, and, and, and now Cybers. So how does Cybers work? What is the stage of growth? Where are you in? And just to, to give some context to, to the audience. So we have been leading that business, the first one that you just explained, the sailboats from 2011 to 2014. And you started Cybers in 2015, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we started in 2015 with a very um, simple thought uh, we thought okay iot what does it mean iot means we need um uh we need to be able to communicate with things uh, that's very simplified way of, of saying that we can build business cases on top of that right. um uh, our first approach into the market we had this technology and we we we, we had we had a very clear idea um we always uh, let, let me think how I, I phrase that mm -hmm. um what amazes me about the internet the classic internet and also smartphones for example um that these technologies have reached a maturity and a simplicity that allows everybody to be a creator mm -hmm. um who is building all these smartphone apps? It's advertising agencies. Yeah. Yeah, so we have right. made technology so simple that it's not engineers, but advertising agencies um, bringing innovation into our hands. And this is, I would say, this is the, this creative power. That's what amazes me about um, the internet. And right. when, when we talked about internet of things or industrial internet of things, the immediate conclusion we draw was we drew was um, okay. That means we can extend this idea to a world like the industry. And I, I envision that in a couple, and we still we are still not there, but in in some hopefully near future, mm -hmm. I think that every creative person can bring an app to a factory, um, uh, uh, innovate. On data, bring the best energy management, bring the best AI, bring the most intuitive interface to interact with the robot, whatever you want. Yeah. Um, all this whole creativity of bringing this to the industrial, uh, to the industrial world. That is for me the big promise of smart factories. And um, so, but but everybody, when I when I envision all these individual creative app developers, let me call them like this, 
they will yeah. all have a common problem. And this common problem is that the factory does not have an API. It's not that simple. Yeah, the sim the mm -hmm. simple access to data and the, the simple interface is missing. And so our founding story was let's give factories an API. Mm -hmm. Let's make data access so simple that building apps for a factory is as simple as building apps on a smartphone. So that's basically the, the, the foundation. Um, uh, and that is why we decided to build a software that in itself is more a facilitator for communication with industrial equipment mm -hmm. than an application in itself. Yeah? So we don't do dashboards, we don't do algorithms, we don't do uh, um, HMIs. That is what we leave to our partners or to basically the, the rest of the technology stack. And this was really the founding idea, but the question is how do you bring that into the market? And yep. um, our initial assumption, the, okay, mm -hmm. the absolutely initial assumption was factories are already connected. That was what we thought, 2015. Yeah, mm -hmm. because you, when you switch on your TV and you see a factory, you see all these robots uh, welding and screwing and right. dance, <laughs> ballet and so on. Yeah, but the truth is, not the reality. We are far away from that. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing, single thing. So the, the biggest problem of the factories is still um, that most processes are still full of paper pen and yeah. paper and manual work and so on yeah. so uh, we thought how we scale that we thought um, we work um, with the machine vendors um, yeah, we, because as a startup you, you try to, to find yeah. some some leverage and some multiplier and we yeah. uh, our initial assumption was when we um, when we uh, partner tightly with machine vendors, we can scale with them into the market. Mm -hmm. And we did that for a couple of years. Uh, we even found investment for that. We developed our product for that. Um, uh, essentially allowing, um, for example, a robot manufacturer to stay in contact with the robot, even when the robot is in a factory at the end customer, when it's sold. Got it. So they can build digital business models on top of that. Mm -hmm. But all we achieved on that path was many successful pilot projects, but no right. rollout. And that is uh, symptomatic um, for the market. Um, the, the, despite everybody talking about digital business models in the manufacturing industry, we are far, from, far away from that. That's still 2023. This market right. is super traditional. And one problem um, I observe all the time when, when talking to these machine builders is exactly the problem that I described earlier. These are all engineers. Mm -hmm. And when they say, I want to build a digital business model, what is the next thing they do? Okay, we have to specify how our gateway should work. <laughs> and this is and and then they start a pilot on that and then they build hardware and then they invest into a startup and so on and then finally after two years they have their gateway and their cloud set up but not tested a business model against a single customer nor answered the question why everybody anybody would pay for the service um right. so this is the wrong way around and it's Absolutely. a little bit symptomatic and that is the reason why we said okay we have to twist 
our uh, I would say yeah, pivot is a bit too too much of a word for that, but we have really shifted our focus and um, in, uh, since three years, I would say, so since 2020, mm -hmm. we do not approach machine builders anymore, but we directly go to the factories. The um, um, so we try to help factories um, get transparency about what happens in their production shop floor um, uh, on the basis of, of, of real data. So that is basically what we are doing now. Yeah. And, and there we have found a very interesting entry point that uh, is a big differentiator to the rest of the market. Um, also, when you go into a factory, you have lots of pilots uh, everywhere. Um, 3D printer here and predictive maintenance use case there. There's a lot going on on the innovation side. Um, but when these innovation projects shall roll out, they all have a common enemy. And that is the IT department. <laughs> <laughs> the IT department is the one that says, okay, no, that's not secure. We don't open the firewall. Um, who shall operate that? Did you think about a maintenance or update concept and so on? So they, the IT is, is somehow the, 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 the evil guy. <laughs> and we said, okay, but all their concerns are quite valid. Yeah, because right. it's exactly what they say. When you build a pilot, you never deal with security because you want to make this 3D printer work or this AI algorithm. Security mm -hmm. is in the way. It's an opportunity cost. Yeah? Right. And so we, we said, okay, let's, let's take that as a market entry strategy and target the IT with our product and design a product that helps the IT not being a, um, uh, a bottleneck for innovation, but an accelerator. So we have built a product that the CIO will love, that ticks all the boxes, and that can help basically really accelerate the innovation projects from prototype to rollout by a factor of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's impossible to calculate. We have projects right. that go live from the idea to roll out in two weeks mm -hmm. um, that would wow. otherwise take months yeah so this is really right. and and uh, this allows a speed of innovation in, uh, in, in, a, in an industrial environment which is actually very very slow yeah? and yeah. very 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 conservative i would say it allows a speed of innovation that almost allows the factory to operate like a software company. They can deploy and pro process improvement from now, right. to, now to next week. And when it's not paying off, they can take it back. So when you get yourself into a position where changing something in your production process, yeah. it doesn't cost a lot, right. then you can experiment. And that's basically... That's basically the, the, the core value proposition that we are selling now. And, uh, and that works, works pretty well, at least for a certain part of the market. Yeah. Incredible the way you, you are able to explain such incredible, difficult uh, concepts for, for an audience that, of course, 
uh, doesn't know uh, deep uh, about the about the area that you are talking. So great, great exercise, explaining to babies uh, what what you guys are delivering for for factories, and also a great exercise to to understand that sometimes getting to product market fit is is a long run, and we are seeing more and more companies who are able to persevere and be and be resilient before being ready to to scale up. So. You started it with the machine ventures. You needed to iterate into factories, into factories. You needed to understand who were the decision makers to be able to understand what are their pain points and, and to be able to bridge all of that uh, and understand where where is the business model that will make uh, the company work, right? And, uh, and again, that's a search movement that it can take one year, two years, five years, eight years. It is mainly the... Uh, if you if you will give up or not, because you will find out something that works, but maybe you will not have enough time and enough interest or enough will to keep preserving and to keep trying uh, a puzzle that makes the business business model uh, work. So uh, yeah. amazing, amazing, uh, in, in, in the inspiring story. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's also it's also you're 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 always questioning, right? Because um, uh, in a space like we are. Um, and with the with the expertise that we have built in our team with today, um, a team of fifty uh, people um, uh, in different areas of the company, of course, but but uh, experts in in all sorts of, of, of right. things, yeah, uh, consulting, engineering, um, IT operations, uh, and so on. Yeah, so we can we can help customers with a lot of things. That means we could and. Um, there, there's a constant possible fallback. We could always pivot to consulting business. And that is right. that is a safety net on one hand, um, because uh, uh, if the business model, which is still a venture, it's still right. uh, a growth business, which needs venture capital to, to, to work, yeah. If that wouldn't work out, we have we would have the safety net. That's one that's good, but it's also tempting, and because um, it's much easier to sell, let's say, an eighty thousand euro consulting project, right, than selling eight hundred euro software license. It's really, right. it's really crazy, and um, finding the right balance, um, because all the textbooks say startups shouldn't do projects. And also the investors don't want to hear you doing projects, right? They, right. They, they want you to scale. But on the other hand, without projects, you, you lose um, the, the proximity to the customers. You, you don't learn about the actual problems uh, when you, especially in such a complex environment that we, than we are. Um, right. you, you have to get somehow into the customer and uh, uh, see it from inside and, and understand uh, where to develop the product to, um, to to even better solve the problems the customer has. So really finding this balance, how much um, project business should you do or not do, that's really something that I found incredibly hard over the last years. And we had really different times. We had times where we were, we were profitable uh, just because we did so much projects. Um, but then right. again, product development goes into the background, then it was the other way around and it's always finding the right balance, um, keeping an eye on the market, uh, doing projects, but still being a little bit ahead of the customer with the product development 
and and not losing the growth trajectory because that's why the investors put their money in that. So that's that's what I have to uh, to balance all the time. Yeah, and and of course I I think that part of the story is also we have these buzzwords and everyone telling that uh, as you were saying in the beginning that industry 4.0 is is the present and the future. And then you have also today the the web free the the blockchain uh, also a bit the the AI that might be incorporated in a horizontal way to all these technologies. But it's it is it is important to find a use case, an application, and a business model that that works. And being able to manage the right timing to get into the market and understand what is your ideal customer profile. Uh, and how to make the again the business model work? It's 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 a difficult uh, work to do. And uh, industry 4.0, it's something that uh, we've been leading the company for 80 years, and we've been listening for a very long time. And as you said, there is still so much to do. And sometimes the perception is that everything is automated in factories, that everything works in a robotic way, especially for the ones who are not in the field, who are not uh, in the factories. Where did you land or where did you find your, um, your your ICP? Is it more in enterprise companies, SMB companies, any kind of factories? Um, where do you feel that your product is fitting better uh, with that customer? Um, yes. So. Let me let me try to 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 start a little bit earlier. Um, yeah. And I, I totally agree. We are in in in, in many parts of Industry 4.0 still at a point where customers search for a use case. Um, but I, I I think when you have a solution but no problem, that's research. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that's another that's common mistake. And that's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's extremely dangerous, and I'm, it, it's part of our customer qualification in the sales process uh, to identify if we have a customer with a with a problem, uh, and Good not uh, a customer that would like to jump on the hype train. Um, um, so uh, that's that's one thing. Um, our technology is an infrastructure for data for industrial data. Um, and infrastructure with with all parts of what infrastructure means it's um, it's very efficient it allows a lot of throughput um, it can serve a big variety of use cases at the same time yeah so like the highway can bring you to a big variety of targets um, but it's also uh, an investment to set it up yeah like building a new highway and yeah. uh, you have to maintain and operate that and that means such an infrastructure like we what we do and the, how we designed our product it's not a lightweight gateway solution it's an infrastructure solution um, needs some commitment from the customer and doesn't pay off uh, from the first use case uh, like a bridge never pays off because you have one truck running over it yeah it's uh, it's, right. it's it's a mass game that means our ideal customer is a customer that already has a list of digitization, like a short list of digital mm -hmm. projects, typically very different. Um, um, our typical entry points are, for example, traceability. That's my favorite. Um, customers more and more want or have to trace a product really through every production mm -hmm. step. 
um, in the automotive industry is extreme. Um, there are certain safety parts like the airbag, for example, or um, uh, welding points on the car body um, where the, the car manufacturer is obliged to, to um, measure the torque for every screw that mm -hmm. is put in or the, the, the electrical current of the welding. Yeah? Okay. Um, for every screw, really the torque, and they have to save this data for 15 years. Mm -hmm. So when your wow. car would fall apart on the highway, it would be the manufacturer that has to prove that it was okay when it was manufactured. Yeah, this, um, this is one use case, it's called traceability. So you have to trace the products through the production with every step. Um, you can extend that to uh, carbon tracing. Yeah, that's also something mm -hmm. that's coming up more and more that uh, right. customers want or have to um, get uh, calculate an exact carbon footprint of all the products they produce. Mm -hmm. um, then they have intralogistics, um, moving things from A to B within the factory. It's getting more and right. more automated. You have AGVs driving around, but they need commands. Um, then you have mm -hmm. quality management. You have energy management. There's so many different use cases wow. that in the end need data of the shop floor and the customer that is on the digital journey far enough developed that they say we have multiple use cases that have a common infrastructure requirement mm -hmm. then they are usually ready for uh for talking to us yeah? typically they have made the first 10 to 15 uh pilot projects for different parts of the production and now they want to scale and right now right now we have uh so th this comes with challenges this comes with multiple challenges um mm -hmm. one, one challenge is that everything that is uh, um so that's not how how industrial customers usually purchase industrial mm -hmm. customers usually purchase um, uh, software and hardware for a specific production line. So they have a specific right. production process and they want to automate it. Then they have a tender and they get a general contractor and then this specific problem with a specific budget is solved. Yeah? And um, this is very fitting for a pilot project. That's also the reason yeah. from a budget perspective why pilot projects work. But for right. everything towards smart factories, you have to see the full picture. You have to set up an infrastructure and um, create the right technological enablers like a cloud, like a data analytics team, mm -hmm. like software, like Cybus Connectware, for example. Mm -hmm. But this is an investment which is really holistic. And um, many companies don't even have a budget for that yet or a responsible person, um, uh, just from an organizational point of view. Mm -hmm. That is. That is, from my experience now of the last years, that is the biggest impediment of, of digitization in the industry is not the lack of use cases and it's not mm -hmm. the lack of technology nor budget. It's the fact that the organizational setup is not prepared for the transformation that's required in order to think digital. Right. And now coming back to your questions, we see that mm -hmm. there is a change and the, the, the companies change, the, the organizations transform. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, you have this, there's this Conway's law uh, that says 
an organizational um, structure follows the structure of the technological stack okay. or the other way around. So you need an organizational transformation before you can do a technical transformation. And this happens at the enterprise customers currently very strong. Um, so we see most multinational companies in the manufacturing sector, uh, which, which have 10, 20, 30, 50 production sites worldwide, or sometimes many more. Yeah. They usually have set up central globally responsible teams for managing the transformation of each site and um, getting the right ratio of standardization and um, transformation of IT infrastructure. And that is our ideal customer. So we, we, we search for these global responsible um, teams often called something like a, a product owner a smart factory or product owner right. transformation or transformation office, something like that. And, and there you really see that's the tip of the iceberg. It's the largest companies, probably the ones that have the most uh, advisory uh, mm -hmm. uh, from the McKinsey's and the PwC's and the Deloitte's and so on, they, who, who advise them to do this. Uh, and they are actually executing this transformation and that's, that's st just starting. And if you ask me, um, I would compare that movement we see now. It was, yeah, eight years is long, but for a technological revolution, it's, it's okay, yeah, retrospectively. We have now did a lot of um, tech, technology scouting and innovation scouting. And now we see a transformation starting. And I would say it's comparable to the introduction of ERP systems into right. the market, which happened in the 80s and 90s. And it also started with the large companies, enterprise resource planning is how it's called. Yeah. And meanwhile, even the smallest company would have some kind of an ERP system. And I, I envision, I, 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 I'm pretty convinced that we will see a similar movement in the a smart factory or industry 4.0 sector that we have now the first movers with the very large companies and then when the, right. the technology gets a little bit more accepted and proven and the, the competitive landscape and the landscape of products is more settled than it is today everything is in, in, large, in, in strong movement and dynamics then also the smaller companies will be able to buy right now they cannot because they would need to create large teams to even understand um, the different products and how they play together and where are the overlaps and where are the interfaces and this is something that the large enterprises can afford and I would say the SMEs they will follow in a, in, in a few years that's that's my assessment on the market yeah that makes a lot of sense but it's more, more much more a movement of moving downstream instead of the typical SaaS company of moving upstream, starting with smaller companies where you are able to easily get in and then uh, increasing the, the size of your clients, the size of the tickets you sell. Here it's the opposite. So you need to be to really be able to serve customers who are able to invest uh, in innovation uh, and, and then start automating, digitizing, making it super easy to to buy and to install and making it much cheaper to be able to, to start going downstream. Yeah, that's at least the strategy we try to, to pursue. It's um, right now working very well. Um, we have our big reference customers, 
Porsche. It's also very it's public. Um, Amazing. Where where uh, the new Macan is already manufactured on top of our software, wow. and um, this is uh, quite exciting. They did a big leap of faith uh, and really built a completely cloud-enabled manufacturing line. And we, as mm -hmm. serve all the data between the shop floor and the cloud, and it's really interesting to see how that works and how they also do the organizational setup, really creating a dedicated team, which acts as a shared service, providing connectivity to the use cases, um, um, multiple use cases, and now extending that um, across um, the, the full production of Porsche. And um, this is a pattern we think is very successful and uh, and we see many other uh, potential customers customers and potential customers especially in this size uh is, are jumping on the same on the similar train right now yeah. amazing so let's just taste uh quickly kind of your some of the fundraising lessons uh and and then coming also of the evolution of your founding team into your leadership team also your split of responsibilities and how you you went from CTO at the beginning to, to the CEO. But I think that it relates better now kind of connecting here with the fundraising. So when you are in a search mode uh, and find trying to find product market fits, it's it's not easy to go every 12 to 18 months raise a new round. So you are still in search mode and it becomes a little bit difficult. Should I raise or should I kind of try to almost bootstrap and extend the runaway uh, and be able to show more data points that we are on the right track than to be able to, to raise the next round. Uh, can you just give us an overview in terms of the, the funding rounds when they, they, they happened and uh, for other industry 4.0 uh, players in the technology sector, uh, how difficult it is to navigate fundraising, I assume uh, it's, it's not an easy job at all for, for any entrepreneur, but especially in this, in this area from, from what I'm listening from you. Yeah, that's right. Um... Yeah, the challenge is, um, or was, and uh, we were successful or lucky, however you want to put it, um, you really have to find investors that understand the market uh, dynamics. We, we, have, we have talked to investors in the past that pretty bluntly have said, we don't invest into industrial tech because we don't understand how we can calculate the chances. It's just to... It's just too dynamic, and and I I, I get it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. just just right now, what's happening? We are we are a a, a Microsoft partner, and uh, uh, for example, and um, what's happening there is they they're changing. Uh, I can't go into details, but they're changing fundamentally how they approach the manufacturing industry, even a company mm -hmm. like Microsoft, because. Um, although they have an extremely large market share, the actual rollout of the factories is hard, even for such a large company. It's not, not, a, not a question of, of, of funds or company size. It's really the yeah. market itself that I'm not even sure that it yet exists. Um, uh, and who is competitor and who is partner? Um, what is the role companies mm -hmm. like Siemens, for example, yeah, um, that are extremely profitable, struggle to find their position in the architectural stack of the future and they tried with mindsphere cloud offering and they they tried with 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 uh with their um 
automation business and their um, uh, PLCs and, and, and controllers that try to get into the market. And even for, that, for these companies, it's extremely hard. Um, so how hard must it be for a company like a startup or a scale-up that doesn't yep. even have the background? And so that means you need an investor that really has shares the vision. And we have um, we have found those investors in the past. Um, mm -hmm. First, uh, family offices um, from the industry. Um, uh, Andreas Vandenberg a, it was a, it's a small family-owned an industrial company from Hamburg uh, uh, and uh, the the owner uh, Mr. Fanberg yeah, from the company Fanberg he, he believed in us very early and he said these guys they have something I put some money in <laughs> and then, and then awesome. so really like an angel right and then we, yeah. we got the next bigger round from, from Schunk which is uh, the vice president of the VDMA Henrik Schunk it's a, it's a German machine and machine builders association i would say mm -hmm. um, and and step by step um we created some i would say uh due to the people that back were backing us uh we really generated some publicity or or um, some people not yeah, noticed us yeah um, and then uh, it was Robert Gallenberger, who is uh, one of the partners in the MetaWave uh, Ventures. It's a German mm -hmm. uh, deep tech venture fund who very much shares the vision that I told you earlier. So that okay. um, that the, 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 future, the future value will be not by one power application, but more like horizontally. Platform. Um, many many platform like businesses even down to the shop floor yeah and uh, back then when they invested we really had to struck we really were struggling most investors call our software a middleware middleware is something in between it's, it's something mm -hmm. it's like an adapter yeah like when you travel like right. an adapter for your thing that's right. a it's, it's a commodity it's not something where the value is generated so many vcs uh, told us middleware doesn't earn money, but it was uh, Robert Gallenberger who back then uh, correctly said, "But if you are the gatekeeper for the data, and when Cybus is the one that pro that's able to provide data um, from all the factories that are equipped with our software, then we can be the foundation for even more business. So we can." act as a platform in the future and that's also the direction that our business model will take in a couple of years mm -hmm. um, so we, we we needed to found this investor find this investor with um with trust and vision which match, matches our vision and um and uh, at latest last year when uh pwc pricewaterhousecoopers um uh, led our series a round uh, we really cracked through the ice, I would say. And um, uh, when a company like this, who is a auditor yeah. uh, and also has an advisory business, uh, puts their bets on us, um, that is a lot of credibility. Yeah. Um, and starting from there, right now, I'm you are always in fundraising, right? And I'm yeah. I'm, I'm right now too. Um, Preparing and, to be around. Um, I'm preparing.
comparing the R or let's say A plus, let's see if it's a B rent. Um, of course, you have always to, to navigate a little bit with um, mm -hmm. how, how easy is it currently to get money. Uh, yeah. Fundraising market is also getting tough right now. People right. are getting a little bit more careful. Um, but we can show um, a pretty impressive pipeline right now. And with uh, Porsche and so on as a reference customer, that really is uh, extremely promising. So suddenly it turned around. Suddenly investors approach us. And suddenly I, I'm, I find myself in investor conversations and I don't even yeah. have a pitch deck ready um, or, or anything else. Um, suddenly I'm under pressure because uh, the investors, they also follow, right? So, um, and, and they right. see, okay, there's a company that survived long enough they scale. They seem to. They seem to be yeah, able to yeah. to serve um, customers. We have the permission to control production at Porsche, which is quite uh, significant. And so the fundraising story really has shifted. It's an interesting learning for myself, being an engineer again. Mm -hmm. um, four years ago, I had to explain my technical vision to investors and get them on board. Now. Nobody asks for technology. It's now it's right. financials. Now it's scaling model, growth model, sales strategy, sales execution pipeline. So um, what everybody tells that the type of investor talks really change perspective from what is your product to how does your sales work. Um, right. That really is clearly happening. Exactly. Now it's it's all about the metrics, and and the good news is that given your enterprise motion, your average re revenue per account has a, a potential to grow a lot, and you are able to roll out yeah. within your existing customers. So, which means that you can grow a lot your business without even adding uh, any new customers. So, if you are able to do both, uh, it can be explosive growth. Yeah, and of course, um, we are in a pretty central part of the stack. Um, so uh, we uh, we really built the backbone of the smart factory. So mm -hmm. that's also quite a high lifetime value when you calculate an investor's metrics. Right. Good point as well. So let's go quickly to also your evolution as a as a founder. So you started your first company. You have shared already on the show. Uh, a couple of lessons learned there. Then it evolved uh, to Cybers. You start the company uh, as CTO from 2015 to, to to 20. Of course, as co-founder and CTO or founder and CTO. And, and then you you join or you you shift to the to the CEO seat in uh, 2020. Uh, which which was similar to the time when you were explaining the story of Cybus when you decided to shift from um, machine vendors to yeah. factories, right? So I, right. I, I recognize here uh, a pattern. So uh, how has been this journey for you as a, with a technical background, uh, moving more into a business background and needing to to lead the 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 company or or the VC packet business yourself? So we started the company uh, with uh, me and two friends of mine. Uh, and the founding team was exactly the same team that run the boat rental business. Uh, it was oh, so wow. we, it was exactly the same founding team. Um, and yeah, today, uh, one of the th three founders has left the company. 
uh, now is doing something else, have started something different. Um, things change, yeah. Uh, three, sure. Eight years is a lot of time. Of um, sometimes you change your path. And um, uh, my third co-founder co who is still in the company, that's, I always have to explain it and I'm a little bit surprised why. We started the company with three people and then, okay, you, you look three, three young guys yeah in their mid-20s look look each other in the eyes and say okay now we started the company we are three founders okay so now we are three managing directors and then there comes a time where the first time you have to fill in a form and say okay he's ceo he's cto he is whatever cpo or right. so. <laughs> so it's a, it's somehow yeah it, 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 there's this first time where you question where who has what which, which role and right. for me, it was very clear CTO because I'm I'm a software architect. Yeah, that's uh, uh, it's really really my passion. Uh, Pierre was the CEO. Yeah. <laughs> Pierre was the CEO, the 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 the, um, uh, the numbers guy, and then Marius, who is our who's he's he's our MacGyver. Yeah, he can solve any problem. Yeah, he can, <laughs> it's, uh, it's 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 really like that. Um, but it's not naturally given that only because you are three friends founding a company, it, it should be those three guys in the managing role or they want it even. Yeah? And Marius, for example, the MacGyver, he pretty clearly said, uh, I don't want to be a people leader. I don't want to be C-level. I don't want to have strategic uh, responsibility. I want to solve problems at the customer. So he's at the front row. And so he voluntarily stepped down from the managing position even from team lead and is now um, uh, the guy that you want when you when something doesn't work uh, because he's the best Amazing. and that is uh, that is an interesting pairing yeah uh, he's he's even he was my best man i was his best man at the weddings and so we are very close but at, uh, operate at very different ends of the company mm -hmm. and i think i probably I, I think i was no not a good cto um i think i i have made many good architectural decisions and I have a very good gut feeling for software and architectures and technologies. We have made a good a couple of very good decisions. But um, for being a very good CTO, um, you have to build a great engineering team and lead that and make that very efficient. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that experience. Yeah, Just because I'm a talented software architect, I and I don't automatically have the experience to build a great engineering team. And that is something um, where I'm very glad I have uh, just onboarded a new CTO last year, six months ago or so, Jasmine. And he is he's that guy. He's that engineering leader with, with, all, with everything it needs um, to, to, to build and lead such a great engineering team. And, and I'm, I'm looking at him and say, okay, that is what I was missing. Um, um, so uh, I'm very happy to have left this role. Um, mm -hmm. And this, uh, people told me I have a talent talking and, uh, and, and reading conversations and so on. And from that, somehow I got into more and more conversations with the investors, with the customers and so on, and found interest in, in this, uh, in the CEO role. And uh, it felt quite natural. And it's now two years. Uh, um, the first thing I did when I took over the role was I hired a coach and asked what is 
CEO doing? Yeah, I'm sitting in front of a white sheet of paper and suddenly nobody's telling me what my tasks are. Exactly. And uh, we worked it out pretty, pretty well. And his answer was straight to the point. A single thing he said, you have to build trust with everybody, customers, team, investors, and everything that's required to do that is your job. So, and from there, I developed today, and I think uh, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied, pretty clear now what I have to do, pretty clear what I can delegate. I've set up a strong middle management layer where I can give the operational responsibility. Like Lara, you have met her. Yeah. She's, she's heading our marketing Absolutely. team and so on. So um, I'm giving uh, I'm giving a lot of trust in people, um, and um, yeah, that's how Cybers works today. Amazing. So amazing story, amazing evolution and uh, and love the fact of a lot of things that you shared here, but uh, the self-awareness of being able to understand that uh, we are much more an expert than, than a leader and moving into a position of strength and not having any issues that you still are a founder and you can be playing another position. It will need to be an executive yeah. uh, position and uh, also on your side to have the humility to to ask for help for your new role and uh, and then to to feel comfortable now uh, in your new role and then making the difference for the company and, and leading it uh, very well so awesome let's go into the final segment of the show and time is flying it's incredible when we are having great conversations uh so I, I ask you a quick question. You give me a, a brief answer. So let's go for the first one. If you would have the opportunity to have a coffee with yourself in 2015 at the beginning of Cybus, what advice would you offer to your younger self? I would uh, advise my younger self to get help earlier, to ask for advice uh, and ask questions. Uh, my younger self tried to do everything on his own. Uh, meanwhile, I'm much more humble on that. Awesome. And what are you the most proud of on your journey so far? Um, most proud I am about the fact that I'm usually brutally honest to myself and to everybody else. And I don't oversell. And I'm very transparent with everything, with, also with the numbers for the team and uh, with everything I don't know. And uh, we've come this far on a path of honesty and that's something that makes me very proud because it feels really good trust worst advice ever received introduce okrs <laughs> <laughs> okay I, I i would love to follow up on that <laughs> but i don't have the opportunity on this segment so i will shut up yeah. <laughs> and move forward so resources uh, your favorite book it can be business or non-business it's much more to get I, to I, would, I would name two the best business book is task forward from matthias hilpert is the best sales book you can imagine it's really great and the best non-business book is uh, Taking on the World from Alan MacArthur. It's a, 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 a biography of a British young sailor who right. sailed alone around the world. And her mot motto was, go for it. And I like that. Amazing. Favorite movie or series, as you wish? Uh, it's The Pursuit of Happiness, uh, because that's a movie about uh, persistence and success in the end amazing and finally your favorite podcast excluding this one 
Uh, I cannot name my favorite podcast. I don't listen to many, but I have a YouTube series and that is a woodworking series about rebuilding Telly Ho. It's a 110-year wooden sailboat and I this is really good for You'll thinking about something else. <laughs> It's, it helps. Uh, I'm, I'm listening more and more uh, this from founders that sometimes we need to disconnect and listen yes. about another thing. Also to avoid burnouts and uh, being always on it is really important to occupy our minds to other things outside of business. Peter, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. I wish you all the best for the future and you are always invited to, to come back to share the next, the next chapters. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Likewise, and to our community, thanks for being there. We keep bringing you the best of the best to help you scale our business from 1 million to 1 trillion. See you soon and keep scaling.